We would like to acknowledge the terrible people, the traditional owners of the land on which we record Extra Virgin Podcast. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Love Extra Virgin Podcast? You can support this show and help keep us ad-free through the coffee supporter feature. It's just like buying us a cup of coffee. It's totally up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the coffee link in the show description to support us now. Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hello and welcome to Extra Virgin Podcast. Today we're discussing sustainable seafood. We'll hear why it's such a critical topic and also get tips for choosing sustainable seafood at the shops. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of progress made in preventing overfishing as well as other environmentally destructive fishing methods. So I'm looking forward to learning more about it. And there'll also be some great cooking tips to make the most of your seafood. Well, I'll definitely look forward to that. Natasha, do you know much about sustainable seafood? Far less than I should, Sam. To be honest, I just try to avoid all imported seafood and kind of hope for the best. You? Probably the same. I'm aware of concerns about overfishing and I also do try to buy local fish, but I often feel like I don't really know what I'm buying or where it's from. Well, our guest today, John Sussman, has been professionally catching, processing, selling and eating seafood for the past 30 years. And he spent five years as a board member of Australia's key fisheries industry body, so he's absolutely across all of the latest fishery trends. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon. How's it going? Great. Thank you. And yes, welcome to Extra Virgin. John, before we start picking your brains about all things seafood, tell us about you and how you became the sage of seafood. (laughs) A long story short is that post-finishing uni in Adelaide, back in the early 80s where I was lucky enough to work in an amazing restaurant called Neddy's. I found myself in Paris hoping to work in a restaurant kitchen and I didn't really realise that staging meant that you earned nothing or paid to be there. But <laughs> I was lucky enough that Alain de Tournier from La Cara de Fiona, three Michelin star restaurant, gave me an introduction to his fishmonger at the Rougie Markets in Paris. And so I spent a couple of years with a box of fish over my shoulder going into the back doors of all the restaurants that I'd originally wanted to work in and came back to Australia realising that perhaps the level of fishmongering at that time possibly wasn't what I'd been used to in, in Paris and thought maybe there's something in this and quickly started bringing scallops from Coffin Bay in South Australia to Sydney and running around town and selling them and then flying back to Coffin Bay and picking up the next lot and flying back to Sydney and 30 plus years later, I'm still immersed in all the protein that's the most delicious on the planet, but also the most fragile. And just tell us a bit about Fishtails and what it does. So we're a seafood marketing consultancy, which I like to refer to as one of the most underutilised species in seafood. We work with catchers and growers of seafood around Australia and New Zealand and Asia now, helping them to navigate the path to market. And we do that by thinking about the seafood from its end point, so how it's going to be on the plate. And we work backwards to what the fisher or grower needs to do to get it to market in the best possible condition. And a lot of that these days, of course, includes its sustainability credentials. 
its quality and its usability, culinary usability. So it's a very important discussion. Mm. Well, today's focus is sustainability. Can you explain what's meant by the term sustainable seafood, John? It's a really interesting question that what sounds really simple in the context of looking up on Wikipedia that sustainability means meeting our own needs without compromising the ability of future generations' needs in practice is a really difficult, complex and localised discussion. And I think this is one of the issues that we tend to grapple with in that there are a lot of global generalisations in the world of seafood sustainability that just purely don't apply on a local basis. So it's a very complex and difficult discussion. Technically, seafood sustainability means that the original biomass is not harvested at any more than 15% of its virgin status. So the reality is that you're leaving 85% of the virgin biomass in the water. In practice, that can be quite difficult and it can be quite generalised as well with some species that grow quicker and grow more abundantly having a greater level and others that grow slower and, and less having obviously a lot less. So, John, are there any statistics on world fish stocks and what is the state of the global fishing industry? What sort of issues have been identified as threats to fish stocks? Well, globally, it's recognised that there's something like 75 to 80% of known marine species that are fished to extreme or are in danger of being overfished. But again, as I said, it's a localised discussion. I mean, here in Australia, we have very stringent fisheries management laws. On the high seas, it's another matter where it's a bit of a free-for-all. And then in emerging and third world countries, you don't necessarily have the resources being allocated to fisheries management that gives them the level of management that we have here in Australia. So it's quite a difficult and complex discussion. And if you consider that fish themselves don't recognise international boundaries or borders, so we might have a very highly managed and controlled fishery in Australia, but the fish swim out of our territorial waters into another jurisdiction where there aren't the same levels of management and the poor old fish gets caught. So it's a really difficult and complex discussion. Can you tell us about some of the methods that other countries use? We've heard a lot about mega trawlers and these massive nets, etc. There's a lot of misinformation about the industrialised fishing practices. We are 2021 and it's not necessarily one hook, one line, one fish, one man anymore. And if it was, we probably wouldn't be enjoying seafood to the level that we currently do. And there are a number of different considerations when you start to go through understanding what the best practice is. For example, just because a boat is large doesn't mean that it's actually performing it's harvesting in an anti-environmental or unsustainable manner. And in fact, in many instances, the scale of that larger vessel can mean that it's more sustainable because it has efficiencies that you just don't get out of deploying multiple smaller vessels. And whilst that doesn't necessarily speak to the general sense that that one hook, one fish, one man philosophy has, it can be determined by what are the fisheries management principles that are being applied in the jurisdiction of where the fishing is occurring. Here in Australia, where we have very robust laws, it wouldn't really matter what the size of the vessel was, providing those laws are adhered to. And that includes not just what is the target species to be harvested, but what are the bycatches and how they're being dealt with and how they're being accounted for. And I think it's not necessarily about 
having a go at larger, more industrialised fisheries, but about how they are managed and how they practice. And it comes down to what happens on the international high seas and what happens in countries where there aren't the same levels of management as we enjoy here in Australia. Is it true to say that in Australia we set the standards with our fisheries and our legislation? Yeah, that's absolutely true to say. Here in Australia, we have 17 jurisdictions that manage our commercial fisheries, which include not only our state and commonwealth fisheries managers, but also our recreational and indigenous fisheries managers. And they all have their own levels of demand and their own level of jurisdiction. But also, it's an interesting thing to note that our fisheries managers have greater powers than even our police do, whereby in this country, we enjoy the freedom of law where you are innocent until proven guilty. In fisheries management, you are guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. So not only is there a genuine sustainability or resource management issue, but there's a commercial livelihood issue that our commercial fishers need to actually correspond with. So it's a really important feature of why we can justly claim that we have such robust regulations. John, Natasha and I both said that we try to buy local fish if we can. Is it too simplistic to suggest that buying local is the most sustainable thing that an individual shopper could do? Respectfully, that's a very difficult question of Mm. itself, particularly if you consider that we import nearly 70% of the seafood that we consume. And you might say, well, why is that? We've got fisheries that operate in all five geographic zones from tropic to Arctic, and we've got the second largest exclusive economic zone in the world, which is the water from the seashore to 300 kilometres where no one else is allowed to fish. But truth is, our waters are quite barren. So even though we have this massive expanse and diversity in our waters, there's not a lot of fish in the sea, so to speak. So as a result, we're a net importer. So it would be fairly difficult, nigh on impossible, to just prescribe that we should only ever eat locally. Now, I absolutely celebrate what we catch and grow here in Australia, but recognise that if mum wants to feed the kids for 10 bucks on a Tuesday night after school, or we want to enjoy a $9 king prawn laksa in Chinatown on a Saturday night, that it's most likely going to comprise of an imported seafood. Now, of itself, that doesn't mean that it's not sustainable. And that's where some of what are termed third-party certifications come into play. So the likes of the MSC, that little blue tick that you see on cans of tuna in the supermarket, for example, or Friend of the Sea or Best Agriculture Practice or Global Gap, these third-party certifiers can be a really handy guide to the imports that come into Australia in regards to what level of sustainability they might enjoy. That's very surprising and quite worrying to hear you say that our seas are barren. It's certainly something that I didn't know and I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear you say that. Remember, yeah. is, it, refer- is it because they've always been that way? Are we talking about the climate? or? Yeah, totally. It is. We're the driest continent on the planet. We really only have two significant water sources that flow south in this country. And so we just literally don't have the water table carrying the food that other countries, including New Zealand, only five degrees further south enjoy. That group of islands is still coming out of the ocean and they have this abundant wealth of nutrients that flow off their landscape into the water. It's interesting to note that New Zealand which is another highly managed and quota-managed fishery, it has more quota in one species of fish than we catch and grow of everything. So the ubiquitous hokey or grenadier that's caught in New Zealand 
is a much more abundant resource than everything that we catch and grow in Australia. That's incredible. John, what's the process in Australia in particular once a fish or a crustacean has been caught on board the boat until it hits my plate? How many hands has it generally gone through and what's the process? It's a really good question. It obviously depends on where it comes from, who caught it, how they handled it, and in what form. If you consider how vast our country is, that if a a barramundi is caught, say, in the Buccaneer Archipelago in the far northwest of Western Australia, that's likely to have a seven to nine day trek to get to Melbourne by road. And again, a crab that's caught in Shark Bay might have to experience something in the order of five days on the road to get to Sydney. So it brings into play this whole notion of where and how and when a product was caught and precisely how it was shipped to market. And there is a a bit of a misnomer that fresh is always best. I know it's the popular culture of particularly food media would have you believe that Neil Perry cycles down to the Sydney fish markets every morning and shares a jetan on the wharf with Joey Bagnato and hand selects the catch of the day for the restaurant lunch. But the reality is that he loves to have a very diverse seafood menu at Rockpool. And so when he's serving Western Australian scampi or pearl meat or South Australian king prawns, that more often than not, he's bringing them in frozen because he realises that for the culinary integrity of that seafood to be captured as close to point of harvest as possible, he needs to rely on contemporary technology in freezing to do that. And it's really interesting when we get back to the sustainability discussion, how the role of the freezer is really coming to the fore in terms of being able to mitigate against some of those extreme costs in logistics. And by that, I mean air freight, for example. So road freighting a frozen product from Carnarvon or Cairns to Sydney or Melbourne is way more sustainable than air freighting the same seafood in from those ports. So we need to look at this holistically as a discussion and think, well, how was it caught? How was it handled? And how was it transported to market? Gosh, it's very complicated, isn't it? I once visited a prawn trawler for a story and they're often out at sea for weeks. Obviously, those prawns have to be frozen, right? Yeah, absolutely. And hey, listen, eating a fresh prawn that is within hours of coming out of the water is an experience like no other. But The reality is that that's such a fragile protein that to leave it in its fresh state really puts it at risk, not only from a food safety perspective, but also from a culinary perspective. And I, for one, would would far prefer to see a prawn that was over the side of a boat, uh, graded, clean, packed, and down to minus 50 inside an hour than something that has been slopping around in melting ice water for days to get to market. So as we were just discussing, the fact that the market is maturing around this acceptance of frozen over fresh exclusively, I think is a really important part of this whole sustainability discussion. That's so interesting. I've actually been told by a chef that calamari in particular or octopus is actually better frozen. Is that true? Well, certainly. Yeah, look, absolutely. Octopus in particular, because it is such a tight protein by nature really actually does enjoy, interestingly enough, slow freezing rather than really deep freezing. And it's one of the few times you'd ever recommend that in regards to the preservation of quality. But it certainly does assist in the tenderization process. Mm. So it it can certainly help at times. It sounds like it's a really important discussion for us to be having so that consumers can actually understand that 
there isn't necessarily something wrong with Frozen and that Frozen can actually play a part in getting the best product to us. But marketing does tend to sell things to us based on freshness. Absolutely. And in fairness to our good friends in the major retail supermarkets, I think for a long time, the freezer case had been the sort of stop of last domain. And for a long time, innovation in the seafood freezer was a Bart Simpson-shaped fish finger (laughs) rather than necessarily looking to use it for the purposes of not just the preservation of culinary quality, but also the reality of sustainability. It is such a fragile protein that it doesn't really suit that theatrical expectation of a three-tiered cascading display of everything that swims um, (laughs) on display. And I really feel much more comfortable with the concept of being able to approach a freezer that is really well-maintained and is sitting at minus 35. And bearing in mind that freezing isn't embalming. We're not trying to extend the life of seafood forever. I still maintain that, you know, given that the average home freezer operates at minus four to minus eight degrees, that if you're buying from a good source, you want to use that frozen seafood as quickly as you possibly can and show it some respect on its way back to room temperature as well. Don't immerse it under fresh water. Don't expect it to be thawed out in seconds. Let it thaw naturally in the cooler part of the refrigerator overnight or over a day and deal with it appropriately. You mentioned freezing and that brings to mind the handling of seafood and of course if you have the right equipment the way that the seafood gets to the market frozen can vary a lot can't it frozen is not just frozen it depends on how it's been frozen how long it's been frozen and the care afterwards right absolutely and that applies equally to fresh i'm not for a second saying that we shouldn't eat fresh of course we should eat fresh where we can get it and same rule applies if the fresh has been cared for appropriately from point of harvest be that farmed or wild catch and the temperature has been reduced as quickly as possible to try and stop any microbiological growth. That's the most important thing. It's really interesting to note that for every degree centigrade above two degrees, a fresh fish loses two hours of life. Now, if you consider that the average retail environment, even with a mound of ice, is probably something like 15 or 16 degrees ambient temperature, that anything that's been on display on a bed of ice for eight to 10 hours is already compromised. So it's just absolutely crucial that not only that the fisherman cares for how the fish was handled at harvest and post-harvest, but how it was transported, how the retailer's looking after it, and what we do when we're selecting that as well. We'll touch on some more of your tips as we go on. I just wanted to run another scenario by you, John, where We interviewed a chef who worked at a resort on the West Australian far north coast up in the Kimberley, and he was saying that fish that was caught locally was having to go to Perth first before he could get his hands on it. So it was travelling south and then travelling all the way back up to him again. What's your response to that sort of situation? Is that necessarily a negative thing? It's an age-old question and dilemma, isn't it? As someone that spends most of their life in regional Australia and New Zealand, It breaks my heart to be finding myself in a motel dining room in the northwest of Western Australia and being offered salmon or flathead as the two species for dinner. We all dream of being able to get access to what is caught or grown in the local waters. There are some practicalities to that as well. And often it's not the fisher's fault, it's not the farmer's fault, and it's not the chef's fault. It's just 
the tyranny of distance in this country makes it so difficult to try and service local markets. And one of the other issues that I find a, a bit of a conundrum is that a lot of regional Australians enjoy wetting a line of a weekend or after work or whatever, and they might be lucky enough to be in the tropics and catching Red Emperor coral trout or a barramundi or whatever and they just don't feel like paying any money for that fish mm. when they go out or when they're in their retail store and so it is quite a complex discussion as much as it seems obvious to us urbanites that when we go to derby or Broome, we want to see barramundi and we want to see red emperor and we want to see coral trout often it's a bit of a cause and effect it's well no, it's not on offer because there's not a demand. And that's, again, one of those cultural issues that we need to really encourage our regional operators, our regional chefs and regional restaurateurs to be a bit more bold and, and seek out the local catcher or grower and incentivise them just to drop a couple of fish in the back door before it does hit the truck heading to the city. So there's a bit of duty on all of us to actually try and change that situation. And I do feel for the chef that was making that claim and it's not unheard of, but I think that it's about how hard do you really want to push the boundaries and how hard do you want to really hunt for local produce. And so there's an onus on all of us to do that. Mm, so interesting. John, how important is the fishing industry to our economy and, and to our way of life? And what do you think is the key to keeping the industry afloat? Again, I'd say that it's a multi-tiered, multifaceted, but really important question. Economically, it's I think Australian seafood is worth around about three to three and a half billion dollars. So, in the scheme of things, by comparison to meat or dairy or even horticulture, it's not huge, but it is still really important because it's primarily regionally based. And for us to have sustainable regions, and this is where I think that the whole term of sustainability needs to be recognised, not just from an environmental perspective, but from a cultural perspective and a commercial perspective that we need our fishing industries to be robust and secure and safe in the knowledge that they can sustain themselves for the purposes of being part of a vibrant regional community. So it is a really important question as to how we support local fishers when we can. And getting back to that question of sustainability, the onus again is on us. If we want to have robust local fisheries and have access to good local seafood. We've got to support it. In recent years, John, legislation has been introduced in Australia to make it compulsory to use correct fish names, but I'm pretty sure I've still seen flake or shark sold in fish and chip shops. Is the legislation enforced or not? It is a complex question because <laughs> one man's baby snapper is another man's squire, depending on the part of the country that you happen to be sitting in. And there's nothing wrong with using colloquialisms, terms by which we've always called certain species. It's funny enough that the average Melbournean would consider gummy shark as flake, but the average Western Australian would expect cobbler or you know, a river catfish to be their flake. So it's one of those strange discussions that I think we want to be careful about trying to pigeonhole things too much for fear of actually removing the localness or the parochial nature of seafood consumption. I was actually in a restaurant in the Hunter Valley last week and I ordered the market fish that was on the menu. And I was a little bit suspicious actually from the start because the market fish didn't have a variable price on it. It was a set price, which is quite unusual if it's market fish. And so I asked what it was and the waitress went and found out and came back and told me it was Dory. 
When the plate arrived, it didn't look like I was expecting it to, so I questioned her further. She went back to the kitchen again and she came back and she told me that it was deep sea Alaskan dory and that it was fresh. And this sounded very, very unlikely to me. But it seems that there are quite a lot of fish that have local names that are being imported but aren't necessarily of those species. And it seems that barramundi is quite common to find imported but not necessarily from the same species as our barramundi. So the truth in labelling doesn't extend to imported fish. Look, this is a terribly complex discussion. Oh, is it anything and in seafood not complex? <laughs> no, look, I, so, I had no idea. Let, let's, let, let's, let's digress, but this comes to the point. I mean, you walk into a butcher's shop and you're faced with, what, three animals or four if he carries chooks. And you walk into a fish shop and there might be 300 different animals and they're all way more fragile than the four animals in the butcher shop. And all require a whole stack of different handling and preparation and cooking and serving techniques. And then you sort of think about the fact that you can put an ad in the paper and seek out a butcher. And even if he's the worst butcher in the world, to be a butcher, he has had to have completed his apprenticeship of city and guilds and and at least learnt the basics of his craft. Now, we don't have such a thing in seafood. And it's wet, cold, smelly, slimy work. So we don't tend to have as a generalisation, the same level of knowledge at a base level as our peers in, say, butchery. So there's a whole host of issues that apply to seafood that don't apply to terrestrial foods. And then when it comes to the issue of labelling and we take into consideration some of the more parochial terms, it does become quite complex. Referring to that question of barramundi, well, that is actually a species that is found in 90% of tropical waters around the world. The fact that we like to claim it as our own, whilst we all get warm and fuzzy about it, is is a little naive because the same species has been swimming for 6,000 plus years in other parts of the world quite happily, albeit under various other names. Now, the French might get pretty cranky about us calling sparkling wine champagne, or the Portuguese might get cranky about us calling a a distilled grape-based wine a port. And I'm sure some of the French dairymen get a bit frustrated with us calling a camembert a camembert. So we need to be careful about what's practical and realistic in terms of the descriptor that we can apply to a species that will be recognised by everyone and something that will completely confound and confuse. And that becomes an issue that we really don't have an easy answer for, I'm sorry. But it's one of those things where, to your point about asking the waitress what the species was, that's a really good starting point. The more we inquire and ask the waitress if she doesn't know to go and ask the chef and if he doesn't know to ring his fishmonger. Again, I'd argue that there's an onus on all of us to have a greater level of understanding and appreciation for which fish that is, whether it's on the plate, on a menu or in a stand at a fish market. It's so eye-opening and mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah. It's complex, isn't it? And, mm. and we also need to consider that Truth in labelling has been an issue that the seafood industry has struggled with for many, many years. Uh, And I say that with a love of the industry and a love of all my mates in the industry, but you yourselves might ask a a, a mate, how big was the last fish he caught? Nine times out of 10, they're going to double the size. (laughs) And further to that, there's nine times out of 10, they're not going to actually tell you where they caught it. So that hunter-gatherer mentality that tends to predicate across it 
the seafood industry is not restricted to the commercials, it's recreational as well. Mm, interesting. And interesting how much cod there seems to be in Australia. <laughs> seems to be the yeah. most prolific fish on every fish and chip shop menu in the country. Well, you could imagine, again, when we speak of marketing, what are the marketing attributes of Mekong Delta catfish, do you think, if that was <laughs> menu listed? Mm, very true. So we've talked about sustainability being a much broader issue but there are better choices in seafood to make, aren't there? Can we just talk about some fish that we should avoid that aren't sustainable and that may have a bigger impact on the environment? Okay, I'm going to start this answer by saying that we need to go shopping with a very open mind when we're seeking out seafood. Rather than necessarily going to the fish shop with a specific species in mind, that has been read recently in an online forum or in a magazine or you've got a hankering to produce, that's the wrong way to approach buying seafood. You need to be able to go to the market with an open mind and ask the fishmonger what's in season, what's plentiful, and more often than not, that's also going to be the best value that's on offer. Now, if you start there and work backwards, you're at a really, really good point because it means that by virtue of that inquiry, you are going to be eating sustainably. When it comes to pigeonholing one species or another, again, I'd argue that we have such robust laws in this country that we can feel pretty confident about buying Australian or New Zealand knowing that it's sustainable. And then we can be seeking out, say, an MSC certification or a Global Gap or a Friends of the Sea certification if it's an import to be comfortable that it is sustainable. And that applies equally to whether it's sometimes it's claimed that the pelagic species such as swordfish or tuna or marlin could be less sustainable than, say, sardines. But I think that's pulling at hairs if you've got the underpinning safety net of it coming from a sustainable fishery. And I think that that tends to drive me more than sort of just saying, well, no, I'm not going to eat marlin or I'm not going to eat coral trout. I am one to sort of say, well, if it's coming from a well-managed fishery, then it is going to be sustainable and let's celebrate it, whether it's a sardine or a coral trout. There are obviously some exceptions to that that I think speak also to the fact that we have an obligation as consumers to consider sustainability with our seafood consumption, and that is to mix it up. Mm -hmm. If we only ever eat salmon or we only ever eat tuna or we only ever eat bassa, then we're not actually doing justice to the notion of sustainability. And so, again, the onus is on us to actually seek out uh, a variety in our diet of different species, whether that's the fast-growing species like squid or octopus or sardines, or whether it's something that's slower growing, such as a coral trout or a swordfish. Let's mix it up. Let's be diverse in our diet and therefore become sustainable in, in our own habits. That's very interesting. I certainly note for myself that I tend to be a creature of habit and choose the same things over and over perhaps now I'll think and ask for some recommendations find out what's in season instead absolutely I mean when I do eat meat I don't choose to exclusively eat rump steak all the time <laughs> and so it's you know culinarily ignorant if we don't mix it up if there were some things that you would suggest that we try as opposed to others what might they be 
Okay, so we could try a few different things. We could try looking at cuttlefish rather than squid, for example. We could try looking at yellowtail scad rather than sardines, perhaps. We could try Tommy Ruffs rather than King George Whiting. It's about looking at, again, diversifying selection across any number of different species. And if we used our senses, then we can actually pick it up to identify what is fresh and tasty. A lot of our shellfish is quite underutilised in Australia, like mussels, for example, and um, pippies and things like that. Could you talk a little bit about that and how we would prepare them and why perhaps we aren't as enamoured of them as they are in Europe? Yeah, mussels in particular are just such a fantastic sustainable they are really great thing for the environment mussels like a lot of shellfish like a lot of bivalve mollusks are actually carbon sinks their shells effectively have drawn carbon out of the water and filter feeders so they're actually helping to clean the micro environment that they're in they convert phytoplankton to protein they are they tick every box and indeed you couldn't dream of an easier seafood to cook and particularly these days where Many of the contemporary mussel farmers are doing all the hard work for you. They've already scrubbed them, cleaned them, de-bearded them. They've packed them in oxygen-saturated seawater to keep them in perfect condition. So it's faster to have a feed of mussels on the table than it is to order a pizza, let alone go and collect it. And it's just so delicious. How would you cook them? Well, for me, it's a no-brainer. I start by opening a can of beer (laughs) and I put half the can of beer into the pot and bring that to a boil while I'm drinking the other half of the can of beer. And then I add a half a kilo of mussels and put the lid on and gently shake it about every 30 seconds for three minutes, add in a knob of butter, add in some chopped parsley, give it a stir, loads of ground black pepper and then into a bowl where I've just opened another can of beer and I've got some warm bread and that's me. Mm. It is so easy and so (laughs) delicious that we're absolutely crazy not to have that as a meal at least once a week. That sounds pretty fabulous. (laughs) What about the cephalopods? And you mentioned cuttlefish instead of calamari. What's the difference and what's a good way to prepare them? Okay, so cuttlefish as a a really broad generalisation tends to be slightly thicker in its flesh than calamari and is generally about half the price. So bearing in mind that there's a bit of confusion between the different terminologies of one man's squid being another man's calamari. But the idea that cuttlefish is this big fleshy hood of an animal tends to have tiny legs and often they're not found in market. But I think that it's such an easy, easy thing to cook. I like to slice it really thin, dust it in flour, melt some butter and just toss it through the butter, squeeze of lemon and some parsley. And if you like, a bit of garlic, but I tend not to because I just love the flavour of cuttlefish. It's got a slightly richer, more robust flavour than most calamari, and it's got this delicious tooth-filling texture that I really like as well, and it's just delicious. A lot of that sounds really terrific, and I'm definitely inspired to try some of those dishes and different seafoods. Oh, can I just say, Sam, that I had a really delicious fish here that you made once, a whole-baked Thai fish, do you remember that? I do remember it was that. So good. Yeah. So you're pretty. You've got a pretty good handle on fish cooking. <laughs> well, I, I think what John's talked about has got me thinking, though, because often when I walk into the 
fish shop, I will go in with a plan, say I want to make a curry. So I'll ask for what fish they've got that would suit that sort of dish. Or if I want to cook a whole fish and I want to bake it, which one am I going to choose? So I I am used to asking those questions. I do wonder though, what is the best cooking method for different types of fish and how on earth are you supposed to know, John, when, as you say, there are so many different types? Yeah, and that's one of the issues that we face is it is quite confronting. Might I recommend the Australian Fish and Seafood Cookbook, which is 412 (laughs) pages of exceptionally good advice. But no, one of the things as well, just in terms of how we buy our seafood, for me, having a great relationship with a fishmonger is way more important than having a great relationship with a hairdresser. It's an absolute necessity to have a great fishmonger in your life because they will be able to open the world of seafood enjoyment to a level that you would never have imagined if you'd just been stumbling through the shop by yourself. And I think it's part of that journey that gives so much fun and so much enjoyment out of seafood. And for example, you could buy, say, a whole fish and you've selected it because it's got bright, clear eyes and fresh, clean red gills and it smells of the sea and it's got a fresh sea slime but you only want to have a couple of portions for dinner. But you could buy the whole fish and you could get effectively five or six meals out of it with a bit of care. You could be rendering stock out of the bones and the head. You could be taking the wings and dusting them in flour and and frying those. You could be taking the winglets and putting a southern-style batter on it and crumbing those as a tasty snack. You could be cutting the belly off and putting that into a dry rub and stir-frying that for another meal. You could be taking the tail off and roasting that for a group of chums on a Saturday night. So again, when we start to think about how we enjoy the different parts of the animal and how we create different meals, that's when it starts to get a lot of fun and it's something to be really encouraged. And quite frankly, that's the best value because the cheapest fish you're ever going to buy is when you pick the whole fish off the shelf uh, and ask the fishmonger to scale, gill and gut it for you or even fillet it for you. That's going to give you great value and a whole range of different opportunities in terms of different meal options and dishes. I was going to ask you about that because, of course, our interest has been piqued by chefs like Josh Nyland of St Peter and their fish butchery have introduced the idea of the nose-to-fin cooking. It's always interesting to me when I go to the fishmonger how many people standing beside me will buy fillets and they want the fillets without the skin on, which I always think is slightly odd. Yeah, Josh has done a fantastic job on shining the light on seafood, but I'd argue that there were plenty of people eating whole fish and wings and tails and heads well before 2020. But that said, it's an absolute key point to the discussion that I'm based at the Sydney Fish Market and here in Sydney there are five fantastic retailers that do have those archetypal everything that swims three-tiered cascading displays of seafood. (laughs) And so often you see the average Joe walk around all the stores and ogle at all the amazing different sea creatures and then move to the boneless white fillet section to get their (laughs) their dinner. And it's, hey, buddy, give something else a go. It doesn't have to be boneless and white, but I guess that's part of the process of encouraging and motivating and delighting people with something that they haven't necessarily had experience with before. I guess we were an Anglo-Saxon nation that could do some terrible things with lamb and peas. (laughs) And it's only in the last generation that we've started to see the influx of the ethnic ghettos in popular culture culinarily and how that's had such an impact. I mean, just think that salt and pepper calamari, which is now a bistro standard around the country, 
was less than a generation ago exclusively bait. Mm. So it's exciting to see how fast the enjoyment of seafood is changing in this country and nothing gives me more pleasure than seeing a five-year-old being discerning about the sushi that they're selecting. It's really encouraging to think that in a culture of less than 300 years of age that we have a very diverse diet of seafood and a very diverse demand for different cuisines. So it's fantastic. I'm going to be doing more and be even more diverse now, I think, after talking to you. Yeah, definitely. And listeners, I just wanted to point out that John mentioned his acclaimed cookbook that he co-wrote with some (laughs) friends, and that book is called The Australian Fish and Seafood Cookbook, and it probably is the definitive guide, so I think it's a fair call to suggest it. (laughs) Look, I must say, Kodji, who's an old mate who was the actual culinary brains behind that book and was Josh Nyland's mentor by chance, is just such a savant when it comes to fish cookery that if you do get the chance to read it, his tips and tricks on cooking to be highly advised because they are fantastic. And he makes it simple. Seafood is really, really simple. And Hodgie's big, big keys are don't let it near fresh water, don't let it near high heat. And that's a really good starting point. Oh, good tips. Mm, Yeah, I'm just thinking about the last time I cooked fish with skin and how I did put it on very, very high heat. So That's okay for a very short period of time, but it's a protein that is so fragile that it splits very quickly. As Hodgie likes to explain, if you consider cooking an egg white, if you cook that too hard, too fast, it splits and it becomes really unpalatable. I guess that's one of the reasons that we breadcrumb and batter fish as well is yeah. to protect it, isn't it? So that it uh, uh, absolutely different. there are certain species that are just absolutely a dream in a crumb. You know, like pink ling, one of the most prolific wild catch species that we get out of the southeast of Australia. I think it is the ultimate crumbing fish, and I think it eats so much differently from if we were to try and grill it or roast it. So yeah, crumbing is a great way to cook fish. It you know gives it that coating and jacket that it gently steams inside and it's a great way to eat fish as is steaming we don't see enough steamed fish being offered outside of say the traditional cantonese restaurants and i think it's a great way to to really enjoy seafood you need something quite a thick fillet right for steaming oh i'm quite happy to see a scallop dropped into a steamer for 30 <laughs> seconds or... true <laughs> <laughs> and steamed king george whiting makes me cry every time i eat it <laughs> Well, thanks, John. We'll add all of those great tips along with a link to the cookbook to our webpage, extravirginfoodandtravel.com. And, John, can we count on you for a recipe that we could pop up on the website as well? Absolutely, and it's been fantastic to chat. It's such an exciting category that people must eat more seafood. I think we should include your mussel beer recipe. That Mm. sounds so delicious. Mm. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, John. It sounds like we've got a lot to be proud of with our industry, but that we could all do a little bit more and be a bit more experimental with what seafood we choose to eat to ensure it stays viable and that our fish stocks are always healthy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and, yeah, eat more fish. (laughs) Great talking to you, John. And thanks again for sharing your knowledge and inspiring us with your tips. To our listeners, wherever you are in the world, thank you. That's it for this episode. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. 
If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. 